so as I was Googling and looking at all the wonderful photographs, you know, the sandy white beaches and the aqua blue sea and the multicolored fish and the iguanas and turtles and you name it, I also discovered that it's a tax haven. And I thought, well, what on earth is a tax haven? I mean, yes, I, you know, I've seen it in the movies, the bad guys, they keep all their, their money here and then, then Tom Cruise has some impossible mission, he has to come and you know, sort it all out. And so I kind of knew that. But I was like, well, what on earth actually is a tax haven? And then I found out Stuff like that. there's no corporate tax. I was like, that's cool. You know, companies base their subsidiary entities here that protects them or, or shields them from uh, income taxation. And then for residents, I thought, well, this is quite um, attractive. There's, there's no direct tax. I know they, they get you in, in other ways. But then, you know, they say no income tax, no property tax, things like that. And so, yes, very, a very alluring prospect to come here and, and to find employment and to be a part of something, maybe be a part of a financial institution here. And then on top of that, it's a thriving economy, which is very attractive to those of us who come from uh, third world countries where we could say our, our economy is non-existent or not doing too well. Um, and so to come here, find employment, uh, and, and maybe be able to send money back home uh, to meet needs back home or to pay off debt back home is, is all wonderful, wonderful opportunities that the island presents for us or, or, or gives to us. But on the other hand, I was thinking, you know, we're living on a little patch of sand, a little piece of rock in the middle of the Caribbean ocean that is so consumed with money, so preoccupied with money. I mean, it's part of the DNA, it's part of the culture. You do a Google search and that's what comes up. It's a tax haven. And so I thought, well, how do we, how do we as Christians, how do we handle this? How do, how do we process this? Because the Bible clearly warns us of the love of money. In fact, Jesus, it was one of the things that he taught the most was on money because he knows how much of a hold it can have on us. In fact, I'm willing to bet that as we look back at the defining moments in our lives, most of them have to do with money. Right? We think back, oh, if only I hadn't gone into partnership with that guy, or, or if only I hadn't invested in that. That was a really bad defining moment in my life. And so the question we're asking this morning is, how do we keep ourselves from the love of money and maintain or keep a biblical or a gospel-centered perspective on money? The bad news is, in and of ourselves, it's nearly impossible because money is so deceptive. It disguises its, itself under other needs that we might have and other emotions we may feel. In other words, you, you want power, you want status, you need more money. You want more pleasure in life? Or you want more rest in life? You want to do more things that will bring you pleasure in life? you need more money. You want to be a good parent? You want to make your family, you want to make your children happy? You need more money. And so he says, you, you need to love money. You need to be preoccupied with money because money can solve all of those issues. Now, I know you've all got your Christian hats on right now and you're going, no, no, Jason. Mm -mm. We know that that's not true. But what happens when we leave the service and Monday morning starts and we're in that environment that is so preoccupied, so consumed with money, what we need is a superior love 
that can dispel or replace the love of money. A love that brings contentment as opposed to fear and anxiety. And so what we're going to see in our next Defining Moments story is how the love of Jesus dispels the love of money. Not only does the love of Jesus save this particular individual, but completely transforms his perspective on money. So the defining truth today is this. The love of Jesus dispels the love of money. And I get it from the the last verse of our story. You don't have to go there yet. Uh, But Luke gives a summary of a summary of the story that we're going to look at and a summary of the purpose or the reason why Jesus came to the earth. Verse 10 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And I'm defining that verse as the love of Jesus. That's love right there. He came to seek. He came to find and to save the lost. Because think about it. Jesus left glory. He left glorious fellowship and joy with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit to come and find the lost. And some scholars say, by lost here, it means, lost here, it means it refers to a permanent spiritual loss. Or as Ephesians 2 1 just describes us as dead in our sins and trespasses. Those cut off from God. The giant chasm between us and God because of our sin. And so what does Jesus do when when he comes to a world full of sinners? Does he come to condemn us? No. We are already dead in our sins and in our trespasses. We are already cut off from God. Rather, he comes to find them. He comes to save us. He comes to redeem us. Like a Kirk voucher. It's another thing we've discovered on the island. You take your Kirk voucher and you exchange it for something very small because also the island is very expensive, like a small little chocolate or something. And so in the same way, Jesus in his love for sinners becomes our Kirk voucher. He exchanges his righteousness for our sin. He comes and he finds us. He seeks us out, takes our sin upon himself, gives us his right standing that he has with the Father So that you and I, by faith in him, are no longer condemned, but redeemed. And so that's what I'm arguing for. And that's what we're going to see in this story. That this act of love dispels or displaces the love for other things, like money. Things that have taken the place of Jesus in our lives. So Jesus comes to save us, and he he comes to reclaim his rightful place in our hearts. We can say Jesus' love dispels the lesser love so that we might experience greater joy and greater contentment in life. So grab your Bibles, and won't you have a look at Luke 19 with me? Luke chapter 19. You can grab your Bible in front of you or in a row somewhere in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, you can take that Bible home as long as you read it. Or you can click on your device, I don't mind, or you can follow along with us. But the thing is, I want you to see this in your Bibles for yourself. Don't take my word for it, take God's word for it. So here we go. The story of Zacchaeus, Luke chapter 19. And this is what we're going to see. You can find these two points on the, on the flip side of your bulletin. We're going to see this, how Jesus' love dispels the love of money. First, we're going to see the deceptive love of money. 
And then we're gonna see the dispelling love of Jesus, how his love replaces or displaces the love of money. So first, here we go. Number one, point number one, the deceptive love of money. What we're gonna do here is first look at the danger and the consequences of this deceptive love, and then we'll have a look at how it plays out in Zacchaeus' life. So keep your fingers or your place uh, in Luke, but have a look at the screen at 1 Timothy 6, verses eight to 10. This is gonna lay the foundation as we launch into the story in a second. So Paul writes to Timothy and he says this, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Now how many of us, when we read that, we have like a little, a little wince? Or we, we will start justifying ourselves, going, well, the reason why I don't buy those clothes is because these clothes, I know they're more expensive, these clothes last longer. Or I know this car is super expensive, but it's going to help me in the long run. This text is not about that. It's not about what you should or shouldn't buy. This text is simply an examination of the desires of your heart. What this text asks is, are you content? In other words, what has filled your heart? What has grabbed hold of your heart? Because whatever has grabbed hold of your heart determines whether you are content or discontent in your heart. So don't walk away you're going, oh, that new guy says I can't wear Louis Vuitton or drive my BMW. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. Rather walk away going, is that enough? Am I content? And maybe some of you are going, well, Jason, this is not relevant to me at all. Because A, I don't even have a job. B, I'm in so much debt. This, this is not relevant to me at all. This applies to every socioeconomic spectrum because the question is, what are you then aspiring to? I can't wait to get out of debt so that. So that what? Well, I can't wait to get that job. Or I can't wait to get to that position so that. So that What? We're after that. We're after the motive underneath that answer. Because contentment is a state of the heart, of our heart's desires. And Paul is now going to show us the consequences of wrong desires or a heart that is in love with the wrong thing. Have a look at verse 9. He goes on and says, but, for those, but those who desire to be rich, just pause there. I'm going to interrupt us a lot as we go through this passage. Just a little disclaimer. It's not a sin to be rich. Right? It can be the fruit, the fruit of, of just wise management, wise stewardship of your money, or it can be the fruit of just good old, God-honoring, faithful, hard work. So being rich can be a fruit. But look at what he's saying. But those who desire to be rich, you see that? To be. In other words, I'm not there yet, but when I get there, whenever that is, then I will be content. It's their desire, but, but here comes the spiral. He says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, a, in other words, a trap. And once it has you, you fall further, he says, into many senseless and harmful desires. Notice now it's many desires. Starts off with just one desire, hey, I want to be rich. But then it results in you falling into many senseless and harmful desires. We so desperately want to be rich that we grab hold of any opportunity that comes along the way, even bad ones. We partner up with the wrong people. 
Maybe we don't disclose this or we, we don't disclose that or, or we justify it by saying, oh, I'm, just, I'm just trying to put bread on the table. I'm just trying to look after my family. It's not hurting you. No one else knows about it. No one else will catch me. So it should be fine. But here's the deal. Look at the result. That plunge people into ruin and destruction. And the big foundational reason, verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. So money itself, he's saying, is not the root of all kinds of evils, but the insatiable discontentment to have more and more of it. Now, I'm going to share a very disturbing, heartbreaking stat with you. Let me first say, ask it like this. When you think of the pornography industry, now hopefully you're not thinking of the pornography in industry, but just for the sake of this point, when you think of the pornography in industry, we might think the root cause, the root evil of it is lust, right? But according to Paul here, he's telling us the root cause of all kinds of evil is the love of money. Listen to these stats, how they prove Paul right. He says this, according to various reports, currently the porn industry's net worth is about $97 billion. This money is enough to feed at least 4.8 billion people a day. You know how many people there are in the world? About 7.5 billion. Their net worth can feed more than half the world's population every single day. It goes on to say the porn industry makes more money than Major League Baseball, the NFL, and the NBA combined. And I'm thinking, what is more senseless and harmful than the porn industry? And that's Paul's point. You start off with a desire to be rich, and who knows where it will lead you. Ultimately, it says, it can only deliver ruin and destruction. Right, with that horrific stat, let's launch into Zacchaeus' love affair with money and see what it caused him to do and the result he was experiencing. So have a look at this. Luke 19 from verse 1. So that will shock you. I'm like, I can feel your shock. Anyway, here we go. Verse 1. He, that's Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. So a little bit of context. Jesus is now headset on his way to Jerusalem to be arrested, crucified, die, but rise again three days later to destroy the power of sin, death, and the devil over our lives. But he decides to have a little stopover in Jericho. Jericho is still a city today, a Palestinian city in the Jordan Valley. And so he stops over uh, for a very, very defining moment. Have a look at verse 2. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. The great irony of the story is that the name Zacchaeus means pure or it means innocent. And then telling us that he was the chief tax collector and was very rich tells us something very different or contrasting about his lifestyle or the state or the condition of his heart. Because tax collectors were despised in the first century. In fact, they had become almost like another class of citizen. You remember uh, the Pharisees would often accuse Jesus of being a friend of sinners and tax collectors. 
So to be a, to be a sinner is bad, right? And, and for them, a, a sinner was uh, uh, someone who did not obey the law of Moses or the other Jewish traditions. But worse than that, there was, they'd almost come up with another subcategory of being human, and that was a tax collector. You see, a, a sinner could repent and begin to align his life again with the law of Moses, but they believed that a tax collector was unredeemable. Here's why. Remember, Israel was under the oppressive rule or the oppressive regime of the Roman government, which meant that they had to pay taxes to Rome. And so anyone who would then go around collecting those taxes would obviously be despised. And so to make matters worse, these tax collectors were fellow Jews. And so they were seen as traitors. They were seen as turncoats. Rather than fighting off the Roman rule, Roman oppression, they were enabling it. And at the same time, they were enriching themselves because they would go along and collect more than what was required. And everyone knew this, but they couldn't do anything about it because they were protected by Rome. And so they were despised. On top of that, notice Zacchaeus is not just a normal tax collector. He's a chief tax collector which means he probably employed other tax collectors underneath him. He was kind of like the CEO of his own company. And so you kind of get the idea that this guy was super rich, stinking rich. And so you can imagine how despised he was. You can imagine the looks that he got as he walked down the dusty streets going to collect money. You can imagine the comments that were made behind his back or to his face in the marketplace. And as a result, many tax collectors formed their own little clique, their own little society, further separating themselves, ostracizing themselves from the Jewish community. That's how extreme Zacchaeus' love for money was. That he was willing to go through that every single day of his life. He was willing to live despised. Waking up every morning, another day to be despised. So can you see the trap? The love of money promises, hey, you'll be happy, you'll have power, you'll have status. But at what cost? Yes, Zacchaeus could, could wear the best clothing, he could go to the, the finest restaurants, but at the end of the day, he was alone. So please hear me, I'm going to say it again, it's not a question about being rich or poor. It's a question of what are you in love with? What is your heart obsessing over? And what's that doing to your life? What needs to happen is our love of money or obsession for it needs to be replaced by an all-conquering superior love that will dispel it. So here's what happens in Zacchaeus hears of Jesus' arrival in Jericho and something begins to stir. Something begins to happen in his heart because he begins to do things that are very countercultural to his day. So our second point goes like this. The next thing we're going to see is the dispelling love of Jesus. And so for the rest of our time together, I want to show you how it does it, how Jesus' love dispels the love of money. And so the first thing we need to know right off the bat is that Jesus' love is a supernatural, divine work in our hearts. Because the first thing it does is this, it draws us. And for those of you who are, you like your theological terms, this is called the doctrine of irresistible grace. 
Because remember, we started off the story by looking at, um, at the end of the story. When Jesus, Luke says that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And by lost, we said those of us who are dead in our sins and trespasses. And so before we could even begin to want to believe in Jesus, we're incapable of it. Because he's saying our hearts are dead in our sins and our trespasses. We need a miracle. Our hearts need to be made alive. In fact, Paul uses the language. He says the eyes of our hearts, the eyes of our spiritual hearts need to be awakened to see and to truly understand who Jesus is. And so God in his great love for us in the deadness of our sins, he sends this grace, this supernatural grace to prepare our hearts to believe in Jesus. Wayne Grudem Great scholar, he says it like this. It's a summons from the king of the universe that has such power that it brings about the response that it asks for in people's hearts. That's why it's called irresistible grace. Have a look at it now in Zacchaeus, verse 3. It says, And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was small in stature. This is a shorty. So verse four, so, and that's a loaded so. We're gonna come back to that in a second. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. Now the reason why so many scholars say that Jesus' love is already beginning to draw Zacchaeus here is because in that day and age, it was unheard of for a man, especially of Zacchaeus' stature, not in terms of height, his way with the culture, he's standing in the culture, it was unheard of for a man to run and then secondly, on top of that, to climb a tree. And so what we're beginning to see is his pride is being stripped away. And second, he most likely heard that Jesus was known to be a friend of sinners and tax collectors. And on top of that, one of his associates, Matthew, his life was radically transformed by Jesus and had become a team member of Jesus' crew. And so Jesus' loving grace is at work. And then comes the greatest moment of all. The second aspect of Jesus' dispelling love is his call. Have a look at verse five. It says, and when Jesus came to the place, to the tree, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. That word must is only used one other time in the New Testament when Jesus says to his disciples, I must go to Samaria. And the disciples are like, Jesus, no Jew goes to Samaria. We don't like the Samaritans. We go all the way around Samaria. And he's saying, no, I must go. And you might remember that there was a defining moment for the woman at the well in Samaria. And so he's saying to Zacchaeus, come down, because you, my man, are about to have a defining moment. Verse six, so he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Now, a couple of questions here. How on earth did Jesus know that A, Zacchaeus was up the tree? Because we've been told there's nothing but this huge crowd around Jesus, all vying for Jesus' attention, all wanting a piece of, of Jesus. And then secondly, how does he know Zacchaeus' name? 
Because I'm willing to bet there's no one in the crowd who wants to tell Jesus about Zacchaeus. Like, hey, Jesus, come here. This, this is guy, old Zac. Uh, he's really killing us with his taxes, but he's very alone. He's very ostracized. He just needs a friend. Why don't you take him out for lunch? No, they, they hate him. They don't, they don't want Jesus to go to Zacchaeus. They, they, they all like, Jesus, I've got a headache. Jesus, you need to come to my home. No one is pointing him out. And so I remember I said that this is a divine, supernatural love. Jesus explains it like this in John 10, verse 3. He says, the sheep, talking about himself in the third person as the shepherd. He says, the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Hey, Zacchaeus, come down. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Zacchaeus climbed down. And follow Jesus. Now, if you don't hear anything else here this morning, hear this and know this that as a Christian here this morning, you are so because Jesus knows you by name. And he came and he sought after you and he found you and he saved you. Maybe not in, well, definitely not in person like with Zacchaeus. Maybe he used your grand, maybe he used your mom or some or church service or someone sharing the gospel with you. I remember when I was 12 years old, I was in a big youth service in a city called uh, East London back in South Africa. A very shy, introverted 12-year-old and I was sitting in this massive, massive auditorium and the guy was sharing the gospel And as he was sharing the gospel, I just remember my heart getting warmer and warmer. I just wanted to explode. My eyes were opening to truly understand who Jesus is and what he did on the cross for me. And so when it came for the response to the gospel call, me in front of all thousands of young people, my hand shot up in a second. And I received Jesus joyfully like Zacchaeus. That's what irresistible grace does. It regenerates our deadened hearts to see and to understand that Jesus died for you. It dispels the love of other lesser gods, lesser idols in our lives like money. But now, not everyone was happy with what was happening. There was another deadly sin on display that of self-righteousness have a look at verse 7 and when they saw it that's the crowd they all grumbled he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner or at least they were promoted him to sinner instead of tax collector and the word grumbled here means to means like the buzzing of bees and so this reaction set off a a buzz around the crowd of disdainful, self-righteous judgment in absolute contrast to the love and mercy of Jesus. And I felt so challenged in this moment as I got to this part in my prep, this part in the story, I got so angry with the crowd. I was like, are you serious? You've been moaning about Zacchaeus for who knows how long. Now his life is literally about to be transformed by Jesus. But how often... If 
felt like a little check. How often have I read or listened to a politician that I know is corrupt? And in my self-righteous anger, I just want to write them off. Me, a person who has experienced this love of Jesus. And then that, that convicting voice comes in and says, hey, how about a different approach? How about praying for the politician? Can you imagine if Jesus calls him, if Jesus fills his heart with this dispelling love of his, dispels the corruption, can you imagine the influence he would have on his nation or the world? Maybe you've experienced something similar. Maybe you've been shopping in, in Hurley's and you're in the cereal aisle, choosing your cereal, and someone walks into the aisle, looks completely different to you, acts differently to you, and dressed differently to you, and you look and you go, well, I could feed a small village in Ethiopia with the cost of those shoes. But maybe just in that moment, we need to pause and go, well, wait a minute. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came and he sought after me and he saved me. Who am I to judge? Maybe we should maybe smile. Maybe we should say hi. Maybe we should trust Jesus in that moment to be the means by which we call that person to faith in Jesus. Because the final aspect of how Jesus' love dispels the love of money is this. It draws, it calls, and then it completely transforms. Look at verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord. So they're in his house. Jesus has shared the gospel, shared the good news of who he is. And as a result, verse 8 again, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And so a couple of things to note here that bear the fruit of this transformed life or a, or a saved life. The first thing we see is Zacchaeus stands when he says this. Now for, that, for us in this day and age, that doesn't mean too much. But back then, it meant a formal declaration. This was a formal announcement. It wasn't like he just like, you know, leant over to Jesus and just whispered in his ear, Hey, Jesus, you know, I'm planning on giving half of everything to the poor. And so, you know, if he didn't, then no one else would know. No, he, he puts himself out there. This is what I'm going to do. And then secondly, he calls Jesus Lord. And that word means master. It means ruler. And so he's basically confessing and saying to everyone, hey, I have a new master. I have a new ruler in and over my life. Money is no longer the ruler of my life. Because it's been dispelled by the love of a greater, superior master and ruler who's taken his rightful place in my heart. And then look at the result of this transformed heart. He promises to give half of his goods to the poor, and then he says, and if I've defrauded anyone, now our, our, our English language loses the impact there. This is going to be a little bit nerdy, but that, that phrase apparently is a first class conditional clause, which means it's true. I have defrauded people. And so as a result of that, he's, he makes right, he says, by he wants to give back four times the amount. And so the significance of what he's saying there is massive because he is voluntarily making restitution here. And according to the law of Moses, if you voluntarily 
make restitution. You voluntarily make right. You only have to pay back what you owe plus one-fifth. And he's saying, no, no, no. He's using the standard as outlined in Exodus 22 verse 1, which says that if you steal a sheep or a goat and you kill that sheep or goat, you have to give back four sheep or goats. Now, he hasn't killed anything or anything like that. What this says to us is he's no longer governed by the old covenant mosaic law, but now he is governed by the law of grace in his life. And so as a result, Jesus announces this declaration, this promise. Verse 9, he says, and Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. Today you have been redeemed. Then he says this, since he also is a son of Abraham. We're thinking, what? Is he saved only because of his lineage to Abraham? No, I mean, if you've been tracking with us through, through this series, remember, we, we sorted that out in the very first sermon. And so here's a quick summary. Stephen Cole says this. He says, Jesus used that phrase because the Pharisees and the Jews self-righteously thought that they were right with God because they were physically descendants of Abraham and they outwardly kept the law. But Jesus is saying that this sinner whom they despised was a true son of Abraham, possessing salvation because like Abraham, Zacchaeus believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Faith in Jesus makes you righteous, a true son of Abraham, because that's what Abraham did. And then at this point, the irony begins to unravel. Because remember, we said Zacchaeus' name, it means pure, it means innocent, and he was living in complete opposite to it. But now, the love of Jesus has dispelled that sin, dispelled that, that idol and has now declared this man saved, justified, forgiven, righteous, innocent, pure. Well, like verse 10 says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. No longer lost from the love of God, no longer lost to the love of other things, but now the one true God has become the one true God in his life. And so as we wrap things up, the question then becomes, so what should the dispelling love of Jesus look like in our lives? I'm thinking it should pretty much play out like it did in Zacchaeus' life. Number one, obedience to the call of Jesus on your life. Obedience to joyfully accepting the call of salvation. If you are here this morning and you're feeling of stirring in your heart to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, accept it, run to it, grab hold of it. Secondly, repentance. This involves all of us. As Christians, we're called to live the repentant life every single day of our lives. Every morning is a call to say no to the false idols that are trying to attract us, trying to pull us, trying to allure us, saying no every day to the love of money and saying yes to our one true master, our one true ruler, Jesus, and his love. And then thirdly, displaying the work of salvation in our lives. And so yes, if that means making restitution with others that we have wronged, then that's what we go do. 
If it means being generous with our money or our time or with our talents, then that's what we do. And if it means telling others the reason why Jesus came to this world to seek and save the lost so that their lives may be filled with this love that dispels false gods and idols that lead to ruin and destruction, then that is what we do. And you know what the result is for you and I? Contentment. Peace and contentment. I'll be honest with you, and maybe some of the accountants were thinking the same thing. You know when Zacchaeus was saying, I'm going to give half to the poor and I'm going to give fourfold to everyone I've defrauded? If I was there, I probably would have gone, hey, Zach, you probably want to rethink that, buddy. You're saying you're going to give half of everything to the poor, and then with the half that you have left, you're going to give fourfold to everyone you've defrauded, and we, we all know that that's a lot of people. And so you're not going to be left with anything, or not much. I don't know if that's wise financial planning. But remember, this is not prescriptive to you and I of what we must do. What Zacchaeus was doing here, he was repenting so as to find contentment in his heart. He was being obedient to the love of Jesus so that he could find contentment in Jesus, his new master, his new ruler. The question we ask ourselves is, what is the dispelling love of Jesus convicting us to do so that we too can experience contentment in life? And so maybe for some of us, maybe it's saying, hey, you need to be a little bit wiser in how you handle your finances. Maybe for some of us to say, hey, you, you can afford to be a little bit more generous with your finances. But if we listen to the love of money, it will lead to anxiety and fear because it's always gonna say, hey, you don't have enough. But listening to the love of Jesus says, hey, you have a new master who came to seek you personally, to save you personally out of his love for you. And because he is your master, he will love you and he will look after you so you can have peace and you can have contentment in life. And I pray that that is a massive massive defining moment for us from this moment on. Sunrise, you have a new master. The creator of the universe and he has promised to look after us so we can have contentment and peace. Amen? Why don't you pray with me? Father, I ask you of that right now, that that truth of your superior, idol-conquering love would fill us, fill our minds, fill our hearts, bring comfort to our hearts. I pray especially for those of us who are struggling with our finances. I pray right now, please, would you bring, would you flood their hearts with your peace? Would you tell them, would you whisper in their ears, hey, I've got you. I know things are tight. I know 
It all looks unclear, but I've got you. I am your master. I am your ruler. And I love you. For those of us who are maybe on the other end of the spectrum, I pray for their protection. Protect their hearts. Open their eyes right now to see how much more magnificent you are, Jesus. How much more worthy you are to follow you and not the love of money. And I pray for all of us, no matter where we are in terms of our finances, that we will be shining lights as we step out into Monday morning, into an environment that is so consumed with money that we would be shining lights because people would be able to see, hey, there's a new master ruling and reigning in their lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.